Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to the book of Matthew, which is the first book in the New Testament, and we're going to be in Matthew 25, which is near the end of that book. So, welcome. Thank you for joining us this morning. If you are new this morning, we're actually bringing to conclusion a series that we've called Together. It's a series that's a little different than what we normally do. We normally go verse by verse through books of the Bible, Old New Testament, um, but this particular series, which was about 10 weeks, I think, was organized around our membership covenant. And the hope was to explain what membership means. What is the meaning of membership? And really, as a church, we've never really studied the membership covenant uh, or really given it much of a prominent place in the church outside of a handful of times when we uh, study it in the membership class. We recite it at our membership meetings. Uh, we really haven't been very intentional about what it means or what it means to be part of a local church. And in the place we find ourselves right now in culture and just in our time, we think it's incredibly important. And so this is the final commitment that we are uh, going to focus on this morning. And it says this in the covenant. We will contribute cheerfully and regularly to support to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through to all nations. And so to help us understand what this covenant promise means, we're going to read a parable out of Matthew chapter 25. It's probably familiar to you. We're going to begin in verse 14 and then go through, I believe, the end of the chapter so Matthew chapter 25, in the context of this membership promise, beginning in verse 14, says this, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. And after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with him. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. And his master said to him, Well, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow. And gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. And his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sowed, and gathered where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, the story of the talents, you probably have heard it before, and that's because it's one of the most well-known of Jesus' parables. It's also, I think, one of the least understood. Now, in the context of Matthew 25, so at the end of Matthew, Jesus speaks a lot of parables. And in this particular chapter, he has three parables, and they're all told in the context of the second coming of Jesus. And so these are some of the last things that Jesus really explicitly taught right before he goes to the cross. And so in many ways, they're really important words because they're the final words of a man who knows that he's destined to die. Now, more than merely making sure that you use what you have wisely, uh, this is actually largely a parable about judgment. Judgment. Now, understood rightly, this parable actually should cause Christians to feel challenged a little bit. And by that I mean it reveals that what we do in this life with what we have matters to God. It really matters. And we quickly forget, I think, that when God redeems us and justifies us and adopts us and gives us eternal life, He doesn't swoop in and rescue us from this earthly life. He leaves us here, and He leaves us here to do something. Namely, to live a life in Him and steward all that He has entrusted to us for Him. Simply, he leaves us with some work to do. Now, when I say work, that causes some people maybe to start twitching or at least to be a little bit uncomfortable. Now, I don't like that. I'm, I'm hopeful to arrive one day when I can say things like work and I don't have to qualify it with statements like, we're saved by grace, not works. Like, okay, we're saved by grace. We're saved by grace, not works. It seems like any time we start talking about working for the Lord, people get fidgety. Now, words like work and toil and labor, those are all part of the biblical vernacular. And we do need to understand them in the light of the gospel, but we do also need to spend some time exploring what they mean in the light of the gospel. More than once, Jesus says, the one who endures to the end will be saved. And if we're not careful, we can think of it like this. I just got to get to the end. I just got to get to the end. I just got to get to the end. Like kind of hiding away and do nothing. Just like, ah, where's Jesus? Perhaps instead, we should consider what Jesus means by enduring beyond just passively persevering until it's all over. The parable, like many others, begins, I think, by giving us a fresh and correct perspective in understanding everything there is in our lives. The master, maybe it's not obvious, but he represents God. And every parable in this particular chapter has the master or God calling servants and entrusting to them his property, whether it be his money, his possessions, whatever. And so, parable after parable 
particularly in Matthew, but certainly in other Gospels, you read about the master's field and the master's house and the master's feast and the master's stuff. And that is a simple way of saying that we are in God's story and he is not in ours. That's really important to remember. In his first letter to the Corinthians, the Apostle Paul said it so plainly. He said, look, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. You were purchased. God owns you. And every part of your life is his. We answer to him. God doesn't answer to us. Our good God created a good world and men rebelled against his perfect rule and his perfect love. And whether men acknowledge it or not, all of this is God's. This is God's world and that includes this, that, you, me, everything visible, everything invisible. It is all his. He is the creator we are a creation, which means we are not just dependent upon him for life and everything in it, we are accountable to him. God is not obligated to us in any way, except how he chooses to obligate himself. We are without doubt beholden to him in every possible way. Anything this side of hell is God's grace. Anything. Now, knowing that, in the context of this parable, you see that by grace, these three men have jobs as stewards, stewards of the master's property. And by grace, each of them are given different amounts of money to steward or care for by the master. According to scholars, the one who possessed the five talents of gold or silver, he was likely a multimillionaire by today's standards. Some calculate the talents in these parables to be equivalent to 20 years of wages, which isn't quite a multimillionaire, depending on how much you make, but it's a lot of money. Still, some scholars estimate it a little more conservatively and say, well, a talent was probably somewhere between $1,000 and $30,000. The amount is really kind of insignificant. All that to say it's a lot and it's not theirs. What is significant is that each one, five, two, and one, according to the text, is given according to their ability, according to the power that they have and have been entrusted with, if you will, by their design. The master seems unfair. Like, why does that guy get five? Why does that guy get one? It's only unfair if you start to compare. That rhymes. I didn't even mean to make that rhyme, but it really, that's awesome, right? When you compare, it does seem like, oh, gosh, why do they get so much, and why do they get so little? They're each given according to their ability. So I want you to put this phrase in your brain and let it seep down into your heart. Everything that you have, that I have, everything you have, 
And everything you don't have is a gift of the Lord. Sometimes the have is hard to believe, and sometimes the don't have is hard to believe. But it's all a gift. Like the master knows the servant, and he gives them according to who they are, their ability, whatever that means, and it means a lot. But he knows intimately who this servant is and how they are designed. Our responsibility to steward what God gives us has nothing to do with anybody else. It doesn't have to do with what you have and what they have or what you don't have and they have or whatever or even how well they steward what they have. It's very personal. So don't play the compare game, it's my point. But this master entrusts each one, 521, goes away for a very long time. Again, in the context of the second coming of Christ. Jesus has been gone a while. If he comes back right now, that would be awesome. But he's been gone a long time, but he is returning. So God-given talents in hand, these servants go into the world and they do different things. As stewards, they would be expected to do two things. One, protect what they've been given. And two, enrich what they've been given. Use what they've been given. They're not blessed because they got five, two, or one. They will experience blessing in their role as they work to increase the greatness of their master's wealth. That's where the blessing comes from. So the master returns after being gone a long time in the words of Jesus, to settle accounts with the servants. Ultimately, he's going to judge their work. We don't like the word judgment. Our culture doesn't like the word judgment. Jesus said, don't judge. No, he didn't. I want to read that more carefully. But we're not talking about eternal judgment. Christians are not judged in the end in that sense. We are saved by grace. We are saved irrevocably. We are saved unconditionally based off belief in what Jesus has done on our behalf. So that's not, you don't get adopted and go, oh, you screwed up. You're no longer adopted. You're not my kid anymore. That's not how it works. So that kind of judgment is not going to happen for Christians. But the Bible is very clear in one sense that we are saved by grace, through faith, and not by works. And the Bible is equally clear to say, but our works are judged. Consider 1 Corinthians 13. 3, I should say, 13. Each one's work will become manifest for the day. That's capital D, right? The day, the return of Jesus Christ. will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation, which is Christ, survives, he will receive reward. Did you know that was in the Bible? If anyone's work is burned up, he'll suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. Right? The pearly gates nip you in the butt right when you get in. So, in terms of judgment, this is... This is not about works for which God saves us. 
These are works for which God rewards us. So, the master comes back. The master in the parable discovers that the first two stewards have doubled his money. And the stewards, these two servants, are rewarded. He says the phrase that I'm sure you've heard before, maybe you wondered where it was, well done, good and faithful servant. And he empowers them with responsibility over much more. He then invites them into the, he says, enter the joy of your master, which I would argue is actually the true reward. You see, all these pursuits of idols and all these pursuits of stuff that aren't heavenly in nature to find our hope, and like we're all pursuing joy. We're the, we want deep heart satisfaction, which is only found in the presence of the master, namely God. And so he says, enter into the joy, enter to satisfaction, enter into to full contentment, if you will, in life. Now, these guys don't appear on the front end to be motivated by reward, right? It wasn't like they were like, oh, well, I know I'm going to get rewards, so I'll work hard. They understood that they had a job. They didn't go like, have some kind of agreement, I know if I do this, I will get this. At the same time, I'm not sure working for reward is a bad thing. We kind of balk at the idea, oh gosh, I'm not going to work for reward. At least not in relationship to God. Perhaps in an effort to sound humble or holy, we will talk about working exclusively out of a heart of gratefulness, which is a very good, pure, and right motivation. I'm just simply arguing it ain't the only one. I would argue there's nothing wrong with working for reward from the Lord. If it was good enough for Paul, it's good enough for me. That said, I don't know exactly what heavenly reward is. But if I think about a life oriented toward pursuing heavenly reward, that's likely, at least on earth, going to result in a life like Christ. Which means a life full of, at times, suffering, poverty, and sacrifice. So, pursuit of heavenly reward does produce a certain kind of life here and a different kind of life there. So, all that to say, there will be things that are, we will evaluate what we do. It matters what we do in this life with all that God has given us. So the master comes to this last servant who got the one talent. And what he does is kind of disturbing. This is the man who was given one thing and has zero to show for it. There's nothing to be evaluated. And the servant explains what he did with the talent he was given. He says, I buried it away. And some of us right now are thinking, well, that seems wise. He didn't lose it. Keep reading. He explains his reasons for doing nothing with the talent that he had been trusted with to steward. And essentially, here's what he says. And it sounds 
eerily like the Garden of Eden slightly, but I'll let you make that connection. He declares that what he knows about the master's character as the justification for what the master is going to call laziness. Catch that? The servant claims he knew the master was a hard man. He knew that he reaped where he did not sow, so he did nothing. And ironically, the master uses the same description for the reason why he should have done something. So what's the lesson? It's possible it's wrong to use God's character to abdicate our responsibility. Well, what do we do that? Well, God is sovereign. I don't need to evangelize. God is loving, so I'm not going to judge anything. God is forgiving, so I don't need to confess. He knows. God protects, so I don't need to fight or to stand for anything. God provides, so I don't need to give or work. You see, what we know about God isn't supposed to lead us to apathy. It should inspire us to action. So the master condemns this man. Why does he condemn him? At the heart, he condemns him because largely he is thinking about himself. I've often wondered if the man had invested it, had done something with it as the story went, and he had lost it all, would he be condemned? I'm not convinced that the condemnation is coming because of the lack of fruitfulness, but because of what he didn't even try to do. He didn't even make an attempt. Surprisingly, his selfishness was most evidenced in his passivity with what he didn't do with what he had been given. He failed to really live for the master, something he was fully aware he was responsible to do, and so he is not invited into the joy of his master. Rather, he is judged as both wicked and lazy. And we go, oh, dang. I mean, lazy, I get it. Wicked? That seems kind of harsh. I mean, he gave the money back. He didn't lose the money. That seems kind of unfair. I'm sure no one's thinking that. But then he's separated from the master completely, and he's thrust out into the outer darkness. And Jesus says, in that place there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the Greek phrase for gnashing of teeth is really like a grinding of teeth, like... And in some sense, what that means is that in that place, there will be weeping for pain for sure, but there are no cries for escape, only rage against the master for what? Being unfair. How dare you? So what does that have to do with a covenant promise? Particularly, what does that have to do with this promise, we will contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expenses of the church, the relief of the poor, and the spread of the gospel through all nations, or shall cast you into outer darkness. No, we didn't add that part. Stop there. 
But what does it have to do with that? Well, see, most people read this covenant promise, and I think their minds understandably are drawn to, or their ears here, give money to the church. That's what this is about. Now, yes and no. I have no problem with it being partially about that, and I have no problem with that because Jesus talked a lot about money, a ton. I, as a pastor, probably don't talk about it enough. The elders at times are like, "Mm, need to preach about this. Not because we somehow are missing bills, never missed a bill in 15-year ministry, but because money is really important to us. Jesus talked about it a lot. Depending on the calculation you use, some argue that he one-third of what he taught was about money or possessions. That's like one verse for every seven in the first three Gospels. He talked about it more than he talked about love. Now, in doing this, Jesus reveals that there's a real battle raging in our hearts and souls about whether money is just going to be this gift we've received or a God that's going to govern us. However uncomfortable it might be for us to talk about money or giving, the conversation is certainly a spiritual one and not just purely practical. Unlike most pastors, maybe myself included, Jesus talks about money a lot of the time because he couldn't care less about the approval of men. Now, if I talked as much about money as Jesus did, a lot of you would leave. And that's just the truth. But it's not purely about money. Let's just broaden it a little bit. We say we will contribute. Let's talk about all things we can contribute. Now, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 19, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourself treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, treasure is a pretty broad term could be understood as money and possessions, but it can be lots of other things. Jesus taught simply, wherever your treasure is, that's where your heart is. What you treasure doesn't reveal your heart, I believe, as much as it actually takes your heart into their, that place. Our lives are driven by what we value most, not what we say we value most. Our thoughts, our words, our actions, our attitudes, even our perspectives of things are governed by what our heart treasures most. And Jesus warns us, don't let these earthly desires, these earthly needs, these earthly things govern you because earthly things don't last. They tire out and we tire of them. All they offer us is a temporary satisfaction, a temporary beauty, a temporary joy and security. If we find our ultimate, our supreme meaning, hope and joy in earthly things, you're going to be disappointed. And so we have to ask ourselves, like, what, where is my treasure? What, do I treasure above all things? There's a great way to figure that out. You can ask yourself some really simple questions like, 
What do you save for most? Not only, but most. What do you spend on most? What do you sacrifice for most? What do you look forward to most? What do you think about when there's nothing to think about most? What do you fear losing most? I would argue that whatever gets your first, best, and most of your time, talent, and treasure is your master. Now, the parable reveals who our true master is. And this commitment that we make, it does call us to a shared commitment to the master and his work. And there's an understandable skepticism in giving anything to the church. Contrary to the example of some megachurches and celebrity pastors, what they might teach or what they might model, in the beginning, the people of God were quite simple. And they were committed to some very basic things you could read in the book of Acts. They were committed to preaching, not to prosperity. They were committed to blessing the poor, not stockpiling wealth. They were committed to spreading the name of Jesus and not the fame of some brand. In Acts 2, we read that the first, in the first gatherings of the church, they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. In Acts 4, they're doing the same. There wasn't a needy person among them. For as many were owners of lands or houses, sold them and brought proceeds of what was sold and laid at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed as any had need. It goes on to say, and there were many coming to faith as they saw this. So like, when you talk about contributing to the ministry and supporting the ministry, what does that even mean? What do we do with money and time, all these things that are given? I would argue this. Certainly it supports our gathering, the ability to gather the place we gather in, that we might worship the Lord together. But our giving supports all kinds of other things. Some is public and some is private. We meet the needs of the most vulnerable in our church. Some you would know, some you don't. Those near our church and those who are far away from our church. Paying bills, buying um, air conditioning systems for pregnancy resource centers, um, paying medical costs, building ramps at people's houses, like all kinds of stuff. Some you hear about it, some you don't. Because on, honestly, sometimes you're trying to protect the dignity of those who we bless. We support the needs of the most vulnerable through organizations and then on a case-by-case basis. The giving here supports very local, very regional, very international church planting and spreading of the gospel to all nations, including India. We're going to hear about a guy that we're supporting named Godly James. I mean, how can you not support a guy named Godly James, right? Ministries in Mexico, ministries in Africa, where they're not just uh, playing soccer, but they're planting churches. So all these things, and there's many, many more, inspired and shaped by the gospel, this promise that we, we make, it ensures a certain kind of contribution. And I don't mean a certain amount of contribution. A certain kind. And by that I mean, 
Giving that's not just spontaneous, but it's intentional. Giving that's not just sentimental, but it's sacrificial. Giving that is not erratic, but quite consistent. Giving that is not just dutiful, but is cheerful as we seek to do the work of the kingdom together. Now, can I just do that as an individual? Can I just give individually, privately? You certainly can. But in one of the greatest books of wisdom, the book of Ecclesiastes, the so-called preacher who is speaking declares that two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. See, not only does our covenant promise call us to pursue the heavenly rewards that come with obedience, but our covenant also reminds us of the earthly reward that comes with a shared obedience. Quite simply, we can do more together than we can as individuals. According to Scripture, like these servants, God has apportioned, right? He has distributed gifts and talents to each individual as he's chosen, arranging them in his church. Why? Why would he do that? What's the goal? Ephesians 2 says the goal is that through the church, God displays his manifold wisdom to the world. So as we contribute together and work together, we make much of God. We're not just more effective in getting stuff done, we're more evangelistic together. Now, here's the truth. Every single person here, young or old, male, female, educated, uneducated, rich or poor, has been given something to give to others that the giver might be glorified. You have been given something. You are fearfully and wonderfully made uniquely made, uniquely blessed. See, most approach the church and they ask, what am I going to get? That's kind of our culture for everything and the church, unfortunately, is no exception. And so we should expect that from strangers. We should not expect that from family members. This series really is about membership in a church, what it means to be part of a church. And so family understands what's going on. Family knows what the church is. Family understands what the church is trying to accomplish. In a perfect church, which doesn't exist. But I want you to think for a second. In a perfect church, there would be no need for any volunteer requests. In a perfect church, there would be no need for a formal benevolence ministry. In a perfect church, dare I say, there would perhaps be no need for a vocational pastor. Doesn't mean the church wouldn't have elders. But if everyone gave and contributed and played their role, the church would function. 
perfectly according to God's design. The interesting thing is I've watched several churches grow. I've started two churches in my living room. Start off about a dozen people. And what I've watched as churches grow, things change. What I mean by that is that the commitment level drops the larger the church gets. How do I know that? Well, with your 12 people, everybody's doing something. And it's easy. It's desirable. Even 50 people, everyone's doing something. The commitment is great because they understand the part they play. But as the church gets bigger, you begin to hide or have the ability to hide in the shadows or just stand back and watch like a spectator. And so as churches go from living rooms to sanctuaries, what and how people contribute seems to fade away because everyone believes that someone else is doing it. Now, it makes sense in some regard because if you take 10 people in a room and one of those people drop with a heart attack of some kind, how many people are helping that person? Nine. You put that same person in a group of 150 and someone drops and most people are assuming I'm sure someone else is helping them. And that happens with churches. And so we put this commitment in there to call people to remember, like, you have a role to play, a part to play, something to give. Don't assume someone else is taking care of the family. And so for personal reflection, because this is not about the compare game. There are many people who serve faithfully in our church. So I just say, spend some time with the Lord and ask yourself this question. What would happen if every church member invested their gifts into the ministry of Restoration Road Church the way you do? What would happen? I'm not talking about quantity or how much you should. I'm just like, what if everyone decided to contribute the way you do? How effective would the ministry be? How evangelistic would the ministry be? Would the ministry even continue? Now, even if I convince you, like, okay, I've, I understand the importance of, of contributing you might ask yourself, but I don't have, I, I, I don't have as much. I don't have this. I don't have, I don't have. I don't have anything to give. I don't have as much to give as someone else does. I think sometimes, again, you're getting to the compare place. It's hard for us to believe that the, the little money, time, or skill we might have could really matter in the big scale of things. It could really make a difference. And not only do I think we begin to evaluate the worthiness of what we're giving to, we start to evaluate the worthiness of what we have to give, our gift, at least compared to others. But like the master, right, God gives and distributes according to our ability, according to where we're at and who we are. And I want to just offer a possibility that you have more to give than you think. And I'm not talking about a bottom line dollar amount. 
consider just four basic things. And each one's different. Some of us have time. Lots of it. If you're a mom with five kids, this is not you. Right? There are seasons and stages of life where we have a lot more time. And there are different people that have more flexibility, more accessibility or availability. I, I, I get it. Like, this isn't about what that person has and how much time they give and comparing about like, what time do you have? Because I could give you all kinds of statistics about how we waste our time. We spend a lot of time doing a lot of wasteful things. I'm convinced we all have time, but we don't have the same amount of time. So maybe you have time to give and maybe someone else doesn't. Maybe you have talents to add. And again, we always think like, well, I can't lead a Bible study. Do you understand in any kind of you know, organization how many parts there are? There's a reason why there's toilet paper on the rolls in the bathroom. There's a reason why there's communion bread up here. There's a reason why, you know, people out there in different organizations and places that we partner with, like, that, like there's different diversity of skills and talents. You've been given some skill, some gift, and maybe it's behind the scenes and you're an administrator type, and maybe you're a really creative type, and maybe you're a writer, and maybe you're a speaker, and maybe you're a teacher, and maybe you're a worker. Yes, not everyone can build a fireplace with their bare hands, right? But there's a breadth of talents. And certainly some of us have treasure. Some of us have more treasure than others. And again, we're not playing the compare game. That's between you and the Lord. But I will say this. Just because you make you know, $200,000 a year doesn't mean you have to live a $200,000 a year lifestyle. And what we do with our actual money does matter. And where we invest it does matter. Maybe you have a lot. Maybe you have a little. I never look at giving. I don't know what anyone gives. Maybe that's right. Maybe that's wrong. Whatever. But I did look one time. And I don't remember the motivation behind it. I think we were going into a really hard conversation with somebody. Member A was an engineer at Boeing. Member B was a 16-year-old girl working at Subway. And who do you think gave more? It wasn't about a bottom dollar amount. It's like, wow, these seem really out of whack. And I am not one to judge necessarily, but anyone in the right mind, like, this seems a little off. So maybe you have treasure to give. But let me think of one last thing that you may think I don't got any time, I have no talent, and I am broke. Okay. I still got gotcha. you. A lot of you have some trials to share. And you don't have to be old necessarily, but the older you are, I think the more trials you have to share. I talk to older marriages and older men and women, and 
Usually you're asking for wisdom and like, I can just tell you all the things I did wrong. I'm like, that's what I want to hear. There are people who have been through tremendous brokenness, tremendous suffering, tremendous loss. I would encourage you not to hide that away, but to share that. When we talk about contribution, like your mind goes to like checkbook. Don't let it go there, though certainly it's a place you explore. It's much bigger than that. Because God has put you here with something to give. It might be time, it might be talent, it might be treasure, but it might be some wisdom you've experienced from some deep suffering that you've endured. All that to say, you're unique, and so is your gift. When we compare what we have to give to others, we're either going to end up feeling really superior or really inferior, and that's not where we should be because both of those are really centered on me. If we consider that our gifts are from God and that they're ultimately to God, the question is then not what can I do with my stuff, but what can God do with his stuff through me? The question is, are you going to bury it away? Or are you going to offer it up and see what God does with it? Now, the end of our covenant, just to close us out, does have one more statement in it. And it says this, We will, when we move from this place, as soon as possible, join another church where we can carry out the spirit of this covenant and the principles of God's Word. So as we conclude our series, I want you to understand the elders' perspective. We are talking about a lifetime commitment not to Restoration Road Church, but to membership in a church. There are other gospel-preaching, Bible-believing churches. We pray for them on Sundays. We think membership is that important, though. It's not a commitment to a pastor. It's not a commitment to even each other as much as a commitment to God to fulfill what He has called us to be as His people. And for a season you might be here, and for another season you might not be. But we think it's that important to say you should always be a member of a church. We're encouraging a special kind of commitment to a particular people in a particular place, which includes, among other things, as we talked about this morning, investing in the gospel ministry there. Now, if you're not a Christian, we don't expect you to give anything. We want you to receive. To receive the free gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. To receive the love of His people, regardless of where you're at, but if you are a Christian, let me be just as clear as I can. God expects you to do more than just attend church. He commands you to stop dating and make a stinking commitment. To fulfill your role, your God-given role, to play the part that God has designed you to play in this place. To use all that God has given you to edify His people and to glorify His name. 
Know that this, God has numbered your days. And some of you, you only got a few. And some of us have a lot more. All I know is God has not, he's given you a set amount of time, and that's a gift. And he intends for you to use it to glorify his name and edify his people. He has given you whatever time you have, whatever town you have, whatever treasure you have, even, yes, the trials you have. He has brought you through those that you might use them to edify his people and glorify his name. You have been entrusted as a manager of his stuff, and you are to do that until you return to him or he returns to you. Remember, the servant who was condemned was the one who did nothing with what he had been given. So don't waste your time. Don't waste your talent. Don't waste your treasure. And even don't waste your trials. I agree with John Piper, who lastly said in his book, don't waste your life. God created me and you to live with a single, all-embracing, all-transforming passion, namely a passion to glorify God by enjoying Him and displaying His supreme excellence in all spheres of life. And it is simply my argument that we accomplish that best together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for your goodness to us. We confess, Lord, that we take all that you have given us and all that you have withheld for granted. Help us to see, Lord, that you have given us exactly what we need. You have made us exactly who we are that we might fulfill the ministry you have given us in this place. I pray for our church, Lord, that the members of this church will take serious their commitment. And they will not do so purely because they are compelled to by the pastor screaming at them, but because it is their joy. It is their joy to embrace who God has made them to be. It's their joy to share who God has made them to be and all that God you have given them. And would you use this church to glorify your name in this generation and even in the next. Help us to fulfill the ministry that we have received. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.